This podcast is supported by Understood Explains. As parents, we are often having to figure out things as we go, and that is very true for our children's education. And to help you out, I want to tell you about a podcast called Understood Explains. This season is hosted by teacher and special education expert, Juliana Ortube, and she discusses all the things you'd want to know about individual education plans, or IEPs, what they are, why they're needed, who benefits from them, and what to expect when you have meetings with teachers. I could have really used this podcast when my son had an IEP for speech when he was six. I was overwhelmed trying to understand the process and what everything meant. The episode on Understood Explains, Does My Child Need an IEP?, was the kind of info that would have really helped me get the most out of the educational support of the IEP for my son. And if you need that kind of support, I really recommend this podcast. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. Welcome to Mom and Mind. I'm perinatal psychologist and host, Dr. Kat. There is more to the story than just postpartum depression, and this podcast aims to share it all. From personal stories and lived experience to experts who break down the ups and downs of life from getting pregnant, pregnancy, perinatal loss, and postpartum adjustment to parenthood. While this is not psychotherapy or medical advice, it is all of the stuff you ever wanted to know about mental health and new parenthood. Welcome to Mom and Mind. I am your host, Dr. Kat, and I'm so glad to have you back with us. This episode is so informative and so fun, and I'm really excited for you to hear from our guest, Dr. Carla Nomberg. She is a clinical social worker and mother. She is the author of five nonfiction books, including her international bestseller, How to Stop Losing Your Shit with Your Kids, as well as You Are Not a Shitty Parent, and the forthcoming How to Stop Freaking Out, the middle grade adaptation of how to stop losing your shit with your kids. Carla uses a lot of humor in her writing and just in her life personally, and she infuses that into her book. And we're going to be talking about what she calls shitty parent syndrome and why so many parents are suffering from it. Now, obviously, she's not suggesting that anybody is a shitty parent, but really commenting on how badly we feel as parents when we don't know what we're doing and how much judgmental we can get towards ourselves. We're going to talk about how self-compassion can be helpful and how that can make parenting easier, as well as how parents can practice self-compassion in their lives. This is a great conversation and I look forward to you hearing it. So let's hear from Carla. Welcome, Carla. Thank you so much for being with us. I'm so glad to be here. Yeah, I was telling you just before um, we were recording that I've seen your name, I've seen your books, and I love what you're doing. I love that you are bringing humor to things that are often things that people feel shame about and aren't quite sure how to navigate, but the lightheartedness that you're bringing through humor compared with the reality that there are different ways to feel about parenting and feel about yourself is just a brilliant combo and so needed. Oh, thank you. Yeah, humor is my uh, primary coping mechanism in mm-hmm. life. And I will say that my teenage daughters are not that happy about it, but <laughs> they don't, they seem to have lost their sense of humor in teenagerdom. They'll oh, get it back. Right. But yeah, humor is how I get through life. And I don't know how to be a parent or talk about parenting without it. Yeah, perfect. Well, 
it's uh, especially in this day and age, I believe with all this social media and a bunch of 5,000 different people telling you 5,000 different ways to parent, it gets really confusing and overwhelming. And it's really hard to feel like you know anything about what you're doing when you're hearing so many different opinions. But I think what I love about the book, and I want to get into every, everything that you talk about in there, is that it cuts through all of that and it gets to the you of it, the person inside and how they are feeling about themselves. So maybe we can start there and or dig in there and tell us what shitty parent syndrome is and yeah, what's going on there? Why are we all feeling this way? Yeah. So shitty parent syndrome is a syndrome that I completely made up on my own, out of my own <laughs> thoughts, based on my own experience and, right. you know, uh, 14 years of hanging out with other parents. And uh, so I define shitty parent syndrome as the thought, belief, or perception that we are shitty parents even when we're not. And some parents, some of your listeners might get hung up on that last phrase that even when we're not part, and they might be thinking to themselves, but what if I actually am a shitty parent? And to them, I would say you are not because I don't actually believe there's such a thing as a bad parent or a shitty parent or a parent who's screwing everything up all the time. What I believe is that there are parents who need support and resources and information that they don't have yet. And there are parents that are making choices or behaving in ways that perhaps aren't reflective of their best selves mm -hmm. or aren't the most skillful choices in parenting, but it doesn't mean they're bad parents. It just means they need more information and support and resources than they have now. Oh, totally. Uh, yes, absolutely. So it, do you have any sense or perspective that you can share about why so many people feel this way? Oh, absolutely. I think there's a lot of different reasons. First of all, and this may sound weird, but we're actually evolutionarily wired to see the worst in every situation and to compare ourselves to other parents. And the reason for that is, let's just think about, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago when our human brains were just developing, we have this part of our brain that's constantly on kind of surveillance for any risks or dangers. So let's right. say you're walking around outside your cave and you see something laying on the ground and it could either be a stick or a snake. Well, the humans who had the developing brains that were like, ah, it's a snake, freak out, run away. Those were the ones who were probably going to stay alive mm -hmm. because that mistake, that snake mistake is the one that kept them alive. Whereas someone who every single time was like, oh, it's a stick, I'm fine. You know, mm -hmm. chances are they're going to at some point get bitten and die. So we've got these brains that have evolved over time to see the worst in a situation. And what used to be sort of a safety mode, you might call it. And in some cases, it still is. You know, we're looking out for cars that are coming at us as we're crossing the street or whatever. It's kind of gotten a little out of control. And so we see the worst in every situation, including ourselves, which isn't always helpful. Right. In terms of comparison, that's actually something, you know, comparison is one of the ways that we continually put ourselves down because we compare ourselves to other parents. And often, because of social media, because of reality parenting shows, because of all of this stuff. <laughs> There's a reality parenting show that I shall not name, but I have mm -hmm. watched every episode and this oh. family has like, I don't know, 16 kids or something. The mom hasn't lost her temper once in mm -hmm. two seasons and she's got 16 kids. Mm -hmm. This is not reality people. Okay. Right. So right. anyways, and here I am with my two kids being like, I lose my temper with them on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. Anyways. So <laughs> this comparison, when we compare ourselves to these like perfect non-reality parents, we end up feeling worse about ourselves. It's sort of inevitable. It's the human condition. Right, right, right. And the reason we're wired to do that is because 
community and being part of a community is one of the ways we stay safe. And it has been since, for, since the invention of man or the evolution of man and women, people. And the way we, one of the ways we stay a part of community is by constantly noticing what other members of our community are doing and making sure that we're adding up or, you know, trying to do our best to add up. And if we don't add up, trying to fix that. So it really is a safety mechanism. But the thing is, it used to be that the community we were comparing ourselves to were the folks who lived near us and tended to be in the same sort of socio-demographic class as us and had, generally speaking, access to the same resources and possibilities as we do. I'm watching Downton Abbey again. I'm obsessed with this show. And we all know that the folks in the servant class in Mm -hmm. that show didn't have the same expectations for themselves as, you know, the fancy pants rich people, right? Right. They knew that they had different expectations for their lives, different possibilities, and they weren't going to have the same outcomes as the folks who were the duchesses and dukes or whatever they are, right? So it used to be that we would compare ourselves and kind of measure ourselves against folks who were in a similar situation to us and had access to similar resources. And now, thanks to social media and books that tell you how French parents are parenting better and Asian parents are parenting better (laughs) and all the other parents in other parts of the world are parenting better, we are now comparing ourselves to literally the entire world. I mean, we've got totally overwhelming and we've got celebrities out there with Mm. really unlimited resources, right? right? Right telling us how they parent. And it's like, that's amazing, but I don't have those resources, right? I don't live where you live. I don't have the money you have. I don't have the staff you have. And yet we still compare ourselves. Right. And they're not doing anything wrong. That is absolutely their lives. It's just that they should be comparing themselves to other celebrities and we should be comparing ourselves to other mere mortals that don't have billions of dollars in the bank. (laughs) So I think this is a lot of where shitty parent syndrome comes from. And notice, please, that none of it comes from the idea that we are actually shitty parents, right? Right. Yeah, absolutely. I really appreciate the sort of global perspective that you're bringing in there. And the the root of why we do this is important to know that there's a function to it. And sometimes that, well, in this scenario that you are highlighting is that function of it goes out the window. There's not a useful function yeah. to compare yourself to a billionaire or no. millionaire, whatever. No. Right. So what about for parents who are in the kind of comparing themselves to people who are in the same demographic, which not necessarily always the case, but let's say, you know, school drop off, for instance, that's not to say that everyone is in necessarily the same demographic, but it's a little closer to home. How does the social comparison pan out there in good ways and bad ways? Absolutely. And so I don't want to create the illusion that by comparing yourselves to the neighbors or the families you see at school drop off, it's always going to be that you're going to come out on top or that you're going to feel great about yourself and your parenting. But at least it will be more realistic. You know, we're friends with families on our street. And sometimes I look at their kids and I'm like, oh, man, their kid is like a star volleyball player. And my kid is like a reluctant soccer player who really would (laughs) rather like pull at the grass in the corner of the field. You know, there's mm-hmm. still always this option for comparison because remember, let's go back. It's an evolutionary feature. It is mm-hmm. baked into our wiring. But at least there's two things that are better about it. Again, it is likely that if someone is living in your street, they're going to have access to some of the same resources. So it's not like, you know, all of a sudden their kid is off, I don't know, hot air ballooning or whatever, <laughs> if that's not part of your community, mm-hmm. right? So it's likely that there will be, it at least feel like, you're in the same parenting world, which as we'll talk about later, knowing that at least you will have some common ground with other parents is super important. The other thing too, is if if they're in your actual community, 
which is not necessarily true for social media folks. But if they're in your actual community, hopefully you'll get a more realistic and honest picture of what's going on. So yeah, I may know that some family on my street is their kid is doing something amazing that my kid isn't doing, but I may also have heard or seen ways that their family is struggling too, right? Because I'm not just seeing filtered pictures of them on Instagram. Maybe I'm actually seeing them like snap at their kids at drop off or be late to pick up their kids or all these things that Mm -hmm. remind me that I'm not alone in parenting. So having interactions with other parents Mm -hmm. in real time, which I realized so many of us couldn't do during COVID, but thankfully, fingers crossed, it's starting to happen again. You know, going to these community events, whether it's at the local park or at your church or synagogue or mosque or whatever, and seeing other parents snap at their kids and seeing other kids misbehave, man, that's a gift, right? (laughs) Right. That's such a gift. Like I was in an airport recently Mm -hmm. and I saw some mom and her teenage daughter get into it with each other. And I was like, thank you. Thank you for the (laughs) reminder that I am not the only one. Right. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's super powerful. And it might, you know, oftentimes that's kind of like inside job where you, you're like, oh, wait, they're, you know, they have this thing too, or they it helps you to bring them down a notch, not that they need to be brought down, but we tend, I think, tend to put people on pedestals and see like, you know, comparing their good to our bad kind of a thing, or what we think is our bad, and what we think is their good. But right, this is like a massive social experiment, like we in our head, we're, we're yes. needing to disprove our own theories all the time. And you, you're totally right. You can only do that when you see reality happening and you hear people talking about real stuff. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Super, super powerful. I'm. Thank you so much for explaining that because this, I mean, this is especially uh, rampant in brand new parenthood uh, where everything is new and we don't know what we're doing. And it seems like um, everybody else does, but you know, we're all on this very steep learning curve. And more and more, I see people being honest about their experience. So I'm glad about that. It's such a gift when people are honest about their experience. Like, I remember I did all the studying and learning before I had my first daughter, and I thought I knew everything about what was going to happen. And then they gave me the mesh underwear. (laughs) Oh, my. What what is that? If you are an expecting mom, the mesh underwear, go ask a friend about it, or we'll talk about it later is both like the most amazing, comforting thing ever and also the most horrifying thing ever. And nobody had told me about it. I was like, what the hell is this? And But there were other things that parents did warn me about. And so I think the more and more that we can talk about all the things, and ideally, again, if there's a way you can talk about it with someone who's a kindred spirit, and even Mm -hmm. if they live a million miles away or live next door, somebody who is in the same kind of world and headspace as you are, and It's not that anybody's right or anybody's wrong. It's Mm -hmm. just finding your people to talk about this with because they will, they'll talk about it in a way that feels so deeply compassionate and Mm -hmm. real and honest. And that's what we all need. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I, I mean, you uh, touched on it briefly so far, but I'd like to really get into the kind of antidote for this, which in your book is all about self-compassion. So can you tell us about what's in the book, but also how people can combat this internally? Yeah. So if your listeners have never heard of self-compassion, they really shouldn't worry about that because I went through, oh gosh, like 10, 12 years of clinical training and I was in clinical practice for a very long time and I had never heard this phrase. And it's just not something that was part of kind of Western lingo until very recently. And I'm incredibly grateful to folks like Dr. Kristen Neff out of Texas and Christopher Germer, 
who's in Massachusetts. These are uh, psychologists who have done some really groundbreaking and important research on self-compassion, among other things, mm-hmm. uh, among other researchers. Um, so the first time I heard about self-compassion, I was in a mindfulness-based stress reduction course that I took very begrudgingly because I was trying to figure out how to stop losing my shit with my kids, which for folks who don't know, that was the book I wrote prior to this one. So this is my previous book, and now we've got one on self-compassion. And they were talking about a loving kindness practice where you're, it's like a meditation where you're sending compassion to yourself. And I was sitting there thinking, this is such a crock. Mm. Like what, this is such BS. Like, I don't want to send stupid, happy wishes to myself. Like my inner petulant child, which is Mm -hmm. very much a huge part of who I am and how I function in the world, just was like, I I really had to work very hard not to roll my eyes because I was in a room with a bunch of people and I didn't want to be rude. So eventually I came to the realization that nothing else I was trying was working. So I might as well listen to these people because clearly I couldn't figure out how to be a calmer, more patient, more present parent on my own. And I started practicing self-compassion in a variety of ways that I'll talk to in a minute, talk about in a minute. And that led up to this moment that was like, you know, those moments, Kat, that are so shocking that they like burn a new neural network in your brain and (laughs) you never forget about them, right? Absolutely. So it was a Friday afternoon several years ago. And my kids were probably five and six years old. And I was at the kitchen counter. I remember I was cut, I was slicing a pepper because peppers were like one of the few vegetables my kids would actually eat, getting ready for dinner. And my daughters were in a shocking turn of events playing very nicely right there in front of me. They were like being chill. And we had Willie Nelson playing in the background. Love me some Willie Nelson. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, this thought pops into my brain. Oh, I'm a pretty good mother. And it was such a shocking thought. You I dropped the knife. I squealed. My girls were like, what? I mean, you think I would have discovered relativity? I was like, Eureka! And it was like both this beautiful moment and also how sad is that, that I had gone through six years of parenting and the first time I legitimately thought of myself as a good parent, it took me six years. And guess what? I was actually a good parent the whole time, as are many of you, as are all of you. I was just so lost in comparison, in an Mm. endless stream of advice that I felt like I wasn't meeting up to, right? I was so anxious and scared and confused. And I realized that for some parents, that's not your experience. And I'm so glad, like, if this doesn't land with you at all, yay, that's better for you. That's better (laughs) if this story doesn't resonate. But if if you've been there, you understand, you know how painful it is to feel like Mm. you're not doing a good job at the most important work of your life. So that thought didn't actually come out of nowhere. That thought that I was a good mother was the result of several months of actually intentionally treating myself with compassion as a result of what I was learning in this class. And I was absolutely super, um, I was like a hostile witness when it came to treating (laughs) myself with compassion. I was like, fine, I'll do this stupid practice because the stupid Uh teacher said I had to. Um, But learning to treat yourself with compassion is very much like learning to speak a new language. Mm -hmm. You have to practice it. And even when it feels weird and not natural, you have to keep sort of practicing, spending time with native speakers. Those are the people who are going to speak to you and treat you with compassion. And then eventually you find yourself speaking this language all of a sudden out of the blue. And that's what happened to me. And that's what I talk about in the book, because I will tell you, Kat, parenting is so much easier and so much more enjoyable and I'm actually a much more effective parent when I'm not constantly beating myself up. I mean, imagine For trying sure. to do any job with a boss who's following you around telling you how much you suck all day, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Impossible. You can't do that. And when it's in our own brains, we can't escape from it. Mm-hmm. So when you can get away from that voice 
everything about parenting and life becomes so much better. Yeah, absolutely. It's I to your point, I think it's hard to know, like really realize how hard we are on ourselves until we start paying attention to it. And then once you do, you're like, Oh my gosh, this is rough in here. It's, it's, it's It's, all the time. It's so rough. Mm -hmm. It's so rough. And there's also not a lot of space in the mainstream parenting conversation to talk about the fact that you're a good parent, Mm. right? What we see, and this is about relationship building, right? And I'm going to say this is mostly about women, right? Let's be honest. There's a gender divide here. Mm. And it still is mostly women who are having the parenting conversation, which I think is unfortunate, right? I Mm -hmm. think we need more dads involved and we need to create the space for more dads to feel welcome into this conversation. But that's a different issue. For sure. But this is how women develop connection and relationship. It's one of the many ways. So we don't show up at the playground and be like, yeah, I really nailed parenting today. I mean, my kid was a mess and I just handled it perfectly. Like you, people don't do that, right? right? Because they're afraid they're going to seem like they're bragging. They're going to afraid yes. they're going to seem like self-righteous jerks, whatever. And so what we do is we show up and we tell a story about how our kid peed all over the kitchen floor and then they slipped <laughs> in their pee and then they were sliding around and it was such a mess and potty training sucks and we're totally screwing up the potty. Which is funny. And maybe it's true that we have no idea how to potty train a kid because why? It's just awful. Potty training is terrible. This is my least favorite part. Yeah. Oh, but the end result of that is that when we spend too long speaking that language of self-deprecation, of self-contempt, of all the ways in which we're screwing up, that becomes our native language about parenting. And that's what's rolling around inside our brains. And it stinks. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, You are not alone, and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips.
Yeah, yeah. I'm so glad you brought that up. And it was a, a thought that I was sort of brewing and you, you brought it into focus about how it's hard to talk about if we're doing a good job. And that there's this pressure to feel like you have to, I don't know, humble yourself or something like that, that you're supposed to feel like, uh, well, anyways, as a point, potentially as a point of connecting to people or trying to connect is through saying, I don't know what I'm doing or but this is where it gets difficult is that like, yeah, we, we don't always know what we're doing. So sometimes that's an honest conversation, but what, what's happening internally might be more like the beating yourself up part. So I guess I just, you know, for people who are listening who, yeah, like I, I don't, sometimes I don't know what I'm doing and that's a very real part of things. And so how do you connect to other people who also are struggling, but not be hard on yourself about it? 100%. This is, I mean, Kat, you're nailing it. You are getting to the heart of the problem, which is that, look, I rarely know what I'm doing in parenting, mm -hmm. right? I just, mm -hmm. oh, oh, I'm giving it my best chance. I'm doing my best to show up for my kids and be thoughtful, but who the hell knows? I don't know. And like, I'm supposed to be a parenting expert. I'm supposed to know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> and sometimes parenting feels unbelievably hard. So hard, like mm -hmm. hard on every level, hard physically, hard emotionally, hard psychologically, hard relationally, really hard financially, like mm -hmm. all the things, right? Mm -hmm. And this is normal. Mm -hmm. This is to be expected. This is what parenting is. But for a variety of reasons that we could go into or not, we parents make the mistake of assuming that if we don't know what we're doing, if things feel hard, if parenting feels chaotic or out of control, that that means we're doing it wrong. And that's the like connection we need to decouple, to unlink. Chaos is the normal expected state of parenting. It's the deal, right? Sun rises in the morning, parenting is chaotic. Boom, the end, right? We often don't know what we're doing. Mm -hmm. That's just how parenting is. That's how life is. That's how adulting is. Mm -hmm. And despite, you know, all these parenting books of which I am happily contributing to that conversation, the truth is nobody knows what they're doing. Mm -hmm. We have lots of ideas and we have lots of conversations and all sorts of advice. But at the end of the day, in any given moment, we may not have any idea what we're doing. Right. And then There's just so much figuring it out on the job. Yes. Mm -hmm. Oh, my gosh. Yes. And, you know, parenting is hard. Marathons are hard. Climbing Kilimanjaro, I have to assume, is really hard. And if someone was going to run a marathon and they were like, oh, it's hard, I'm clearly doing it wrong. No, you would say to them, actually, running a marathon is just hard, whether you're doing it wrong or right. Right? Yes. yes. So parenting is just hard. It doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. And mm -hmm. so it's that decoupling of acknowledging this is kind of the natural order of things and actually having moments where we feel completely confident and in control and everything is smooth and easy and working well, that's the sort of anomaly. That's the weird moment that we should like <laughs> appreciate and hang on to when it comes. But none of that has anything to do with whether or not we're parenting well. Yeah, it's emotionally something that I talk about and say to, to people that I'm supporting is uh, just because you feel bad doesn't mean you are bad. Um, yes, and yes. it's right. It's that we overinterpret our feelings to mean something about who we are, as opposed to how we're feeling at any given time. So like applying that to what you're describing is really, yeah, it, the parallel is, uh, you know, not so much about like the emotional state, but about the life state, the doing state of parenting. It doesn't have to mean anything about you. A hundred percent. And I think that the extrapolation from that. And I just want to go back and say what you said again, because it's just such an important truth 
just because we feel bad doesn't mean we are bad. Like that, oh, that lands deep. I got goosebumps mm -hmm. when you said that. <laughs> and I think that the extrapolation for parents is just because our kids feel bad doesn't mean we're bad parents or mm -hmm. that they're bad kids. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, we are living in this society that's oddly obsessed with happiness, that like somehow happiness is the yes. goal. And we need to be making ourselves happier and making our kids happier. And if we're not happy, then we're doing something wrong. And I think back to my great grandmother who lived through the Oklahoma land rush and she mm -hmm. lived through two world wars and she had all sorts of like horrible things happen. And I never knew this woman, but I can only imagine that if I went to her and I was like, oh, you should really be more happy. She would laugh her ass <laughs> off at me and be like, what in this world? Right. What in this situation makes you believe I should be happy? Right? Like that's insane. Mm -hmm. And Yet we live in a world where there is a constant flood of self-help books and podcasts and college courses about how to make yourself happier. Well, let's take yeah. a step back and remember that we can't actually control how we feel. We might be able to influence our emotions or influence our kids' emotions. And there are certain things we can do that are more likely to result in happiness and more likely to result in feeling like crap, but we can't control them. And yet right. somehow our children's happiness has become the yardstick by which we measure our own parenting success. So that's another reason I think why many of us feel like bad parents is because guess what? Your kids aren't going to be happy all the time because nobody is. It's not possible. And right. when we expect our children to be constantly happy, we're setting everyone up for failure. Yeah. How's yeah, that I, for a do? Isn't that hilarious? Aren't I being so humorous right now? God, yeah, I'm just bringing very, all the funny stuff funny. in. Yeah. Can't stop Ooh. laughing. Yeah, it's incredibly hard. I think because it's so hard for us to to deal with difficult feelings within ourselves and then to see it in our children, it's it's almost intolerable oh. to see like when they're in pain and it's hard to understand how, you know, how do we as as parents not overinterpret that as something <sighs> to do with ourselves. It's so hard. And let's remember, Kat, that you and I both have extensive training and experience in like mental health treatment, in working with people, in dealing with thoughts, feelings, emotions, behaviors, all this stuff. And yet it's hard for us too. For sure. So for yeah. people who are parenting and their whole work and life and professional and personal experiences have been in, I don't know, accounting or figure skating or like <laughs> all these things, I don't know, maybe they're better off because they're just not thinking about it all day. I don't well, know. You know what? I think there is sometimes there's something to that. Like sometimes I feel like I know too much. Like I think about I'm this like, too much. I'm like, I'm noticing too many things. I, I, I do know. think there is a difficulty for, for mental health professionals in that sense, for sure. Like, but I think at the root of all of it, what you're describing is we, it's because we care. Oh we, my gosh. We, we parents care so much. Yeah. Yeah. Can you speak to that? That like how this can come from caring so much, how we end up feeling bad about ourselves? Oh yeah. So I have thoughts about this one too. I love talking okay. about this. Look, parents have always cared since mm -hmm. the beginning of time, right? Because again, if you want to get down to like the cold hard science of it, we are again, genetically and biologically wired to care for our children, if for no other reason than to keep them alive. Because if we don't keep them alive, then our genetic material will die with them, right? Mm -hmm. And so we want to keep our kids alive so they can recreate and pass on the fabulous genetic material we have given them. So, but, you know, obviously throughout eternity, parents have had emotional connection to their children as well. However, I would argue that this generation of parents for the first time ever is being told that our relationship with our children matters deeply in terms of their future success as human beings, right? All of a sudden, for the first time, the parenting experts 
are talking about attachment theory. And I'm not talking about attachment parenting. Let's not confuse it. That's a totally different thing. I'm talking about attachment Mm -hmm. theory, which is the sort of longstanding psychological theory that the nature of our earliest relationships will determine the quality and type and nature of our future relationships. And so it's actually a little more complicated than that, as Mm -hmm. you might imagine. Mm -hmm. And it's not quite as deterministic as this very simple story will lead us to believe. But parents are being like hand fed this soundbite that is basically saying, if you don't have a loving, warm, engaged, responsive, healthy, boundary, blah, 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 (laughs) relationship with your child, they're going to grow up and either never be in a healthy relationship or marry an abuser or whatever it is, or be the abuser or whatever. Good Lord, that is freaking terrifying. But it is putting this pressure on parents that all of a sudden, not only do we have to make sure that they know the right languages for the future and that their brain has learned an instrument and blah, 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 so that they're flexible enough to do whatever, but we also have to have this perfect relationship with this person that we didn't choose. Like I chose my partner because I think he's a good match for me and I think our temperaments match well together and I can tolerate his BS and he can tolerate (laughs) my BS and I actually like him. I didn't choose my kids. And fortunately, I'm lucky. I happen to really like my kids. But for many of us, there are times when we don't like our kids or we don't understand them or they push mm-hmm. our buttons in ways that nobody ever has before. And all of a sudden, we're supposed to have this like perfect relationship with them. I don't even know what a perfect relationship is. But I do think that there is this sort of twist on what it means to care for our children mm-hmm. that is putting an unbelievable amount of pressure on parents. Yes. And when we have shitty relationship moments, as we will, I've been married to my husband for almost 20 years. I love him deeply. We have really shitty relationship moments sometimes. It's normal. But I think when parents have shitty relationship moments with their kids, they see that as a failure and not a really normal part of being in relationship with someone. Like, I don't want my kids to grow up and think that a healthy relationship is a perfect one where nobody ever fights and nobody ever snaps and hard things never happen. That's not a healthy relationship. I don't even know what that is. Doesn't and so that's exist. that's my spiel, Kat, about caring and why and how it actually makes parenting harder and ends up with parenting parents feeling worse. Yeah, I agree with you a million percent on this, the kind of generation of of parents. I've seen the shift a little bit over time. And in particular with like parents within the first year of their child's life, I see a lot specifically with anxious people who are experiencing anxiety while parenting that this like uh, feeling of like, I need to stimulate my child. I need to give them activities. I have to be interacting with them all of the time. And this idea that, you know, you, you have to be on all of the time or else <sighs> you're, you're, you know, doing something bad to your child. I mean, I have to point out that like, you know, sometimes they need a break from us, just like we need a break from them. And that's normal. Like we, it's too much to be overstimulated all the time. And sometimes it's good for there to be some moments of quiet and whatnot. But to your point, this pressure that people are feeling that they have to constantly, maybe it started with like baby Einstein. I'm not sure, but um, (laughs) yeah, I have some feelings about it. But this idea that you have to be constantly on and people are sadly, ironically, becoming overly exhausted by it and then not able to be present in the ways that they want because this like motor of feeling like they have to do all of these things all of the time is just not sustainable. It's just not. You can't do it in anything. Yep. So 100%. And this is, I love this, Kat. We're just like sitting here saying things and agreeing with each other. Let's do this. I like this. (laughs) What else can we agree about? 
I know, right? No, but seriously, I think parents, no, I want to say, I think parenting culture sets parents up for feeling like failures. Yeah, yeah. And notice I didn't say sets parents up to fail because yeah. I actually don't think parents are failing. I right. think this generation of parents is doing a remarkable job mm-hmm. raising their kids. I mean, we mm-hmm. see, we know from the data that parents are spending more time with their children than ever before, mm-hmm. which I think as to your point is probably a good thing, but sometimes maybe not. Mm-hmm. But parents in this generation are so invested, right? And so I just want to step back and say, good job, parents. This is freaking hard. Like every time I take my kids to a museum or an aquarium, which unfortunately hasn't happened as much during COVID, but every time I would do that, I would just look around and be in awe of all these parents because I'm like, this is expensive. It's a huge pain in the ass to get your kids out the door to get the shoes and pack the backpacks and change the diapers. And and then you got to find parking and then you got to buckle everybody in and unbuckle everybody in. And all of these parents are here and I'm like, oh my gosh, mm-hmm. you parents are amazing. Mm-hmm. And to those parents who aren't doing that, yeah, yeah, yeah. you're yeah. amazing too. I just right. want to acknowledge that. Like you can be an amazing parent, even if you never take your kids to the freaking aquarium. Right. Yes. Thank you. It doesn't have to be all the things all the time. But I do think like, you know, there's probably times where parents who are at the aquarium are thinking like, oh, I bet these parents do this all the time. And I should be doing it more. Or, you know, it's just, oh, of course they just are. So, like you said, I mean, you're talking about there's so many possibilities for areas of comparison. Um, but to your point, I do feel like there's way more in- parent engagement. I mean, we, I this past weekend, my son had a soccer tournament and my daughter had a soccer tournament in two totally different cities. And my husband <sighs> and I had to separate and spend a full weekend in two different places. And just to find parking in this place, I was like, oh my gosh, there are so many families here. It's just like the amount of time and sometimes money and uh, dedication that people are putting in is pretty amazing. And then I got back, uh, you know, whatever, Sunday night, and I'm like, hmm, pretty done with parenting. I really don't want to like tape ankles or, you know, put ointments on things or whatever, like. And that in the is, car with stinky kids. Right. So like there's, um, and of course it's still on my kids, but there is a part to it where, you know, you, you do put in effort and energy and then there's recovery from that too. And I, I don't know for me in any ways, my particular constitution, I need downtime. Oh, a hundred percent. I need for, so much downtime. Yes. I need a ton of downtime, but like even, you know, whether you're doing these massive activities or you're just like taking care of things around the house, you still need a break, but with all of this pressure to be doing all of the time, it's really hard to honor that. It's really hard to honor that. It's so hard. And what I want to say to parents is my sister had soccer boys and they're awesome. And so she's driving them all over the place and Mm -hmm. it's amazing. And I would never do that. So if you are a parent who either drives your kids to soccer tournaments because you love soccer tournaments, or you drive your kids to soccer tournaments because you don't really have any other options, or if you're a parent who bends over backwards to stick your kid in a carpool so you don't have to go to the freaking soccer tournament, those are all amazing parenting choices. Or if you are a parent like me who tells their kids that they absolutely cannot try out for the travel team (laughs) unless they work their butts off in soccer, like all of a sudden my girls were like, we want to do travel soccer. And I was like, that's a terrible plan. And I said, look, you play another year on the town team. And if you work your butt off and practice every day, and I set this ridiculously high bar for them that I knew they would never achieve. Because I know, look, our family has one car. I'm not going to like buy another car so that we can drive into two separate soccer fields. And they don't love soccer that much. So I'm here to squash their dreams, and which weren't really real dreams anyways. So all I want to say is if there are times when you prioritize your sanity 
and your family's sanity and you and your partners, if you have a partner, your ability to function. If there are times when you prioritize that over their, your kids, and please, I really hope there are. Yeah. That's great parenting. Well, and if sure. my kids really love soccer, they would freaking fight for it. And if they're not willing to fight for it, I'm not driving them three towns over every weekend so they can play soccer. It's Absolutely. just not worth it. It's Absolutely. not. I would lose my mind. So, but you said something at the end of that cat that was, just, oh, like self-care. And mm-hmm. so we were talking about how we need time to recover. And so maybe if it's okay with you, I was thinking this might be a good time to talk about sort of the elements of self-compassion. Please, yes. Okay. So a lot of people hear the phrase self-compassion and they think it's about just like this like ooey gooey saccharine sweet kind of being cute with yourself or I don't know, self-pity or all these like weird things that I just want to get very clear on what it is. It's a practice. It's a practice that you, that's very clear. It's very concrete. And it's been measured. It's been scientifically researched. We know that by treating yourself with compassion, there are all sorts of benefits like reduced anxiety and reduced depression and better mood and even health benefits. So I talk about this in the book, but there's lots of benefits to treating yourself with compassion. So here's how I think about it. I sort of label it as, or I've divided into three parts. One is connection, one is curiosity, and one is kindness. So when I talk about connection, I'm talking about a few different things. I'm talking about connecting with your support system and your support network because nobody can parent well alone. And I'm talking about also times when we connect to the present moment, which is really this mindfulness piece about like getting out of the swirling shitty thoughts in our brain and coming back to the present moment and saying like, what's actually happening in this moment? Like I may have a million judgmental thoughts racing around my mind, but can I just let those go for a minute and focus on what can I actually see, hear, taste, smell, touch, all those things in the present moment. But the connection I really want to talk about is the connection to common humanity. And this is an idea, again, that comes from Kristen Neff. And it's just this idea of reminding ourselves that we are not alone in parenting. We are not alone in how hard it is. We are not alone in our struggles. We are not alone that our kids still cannot put on their freaking shoes when it's time to leave the house, (laughs) even though we leave the house every single day and we put on shoes every single time, right? And so I think that this feeling of isolation, this feeling that we are the only ones who, you know, whatever, insert the end of the sentence here, we are the only one whose kids aren't playing soccer or whose kids aren't doing this, or we're the only parents who aren't schlepping out to the freaking aquarium or setting up amazing cat. We're recording this towards the end of the summer, setting up like amazing summer activities, whatever it is. When we are constantly having this tape of I'm the only one who, and everyone else is doing this better than I am. Oh my God, that's brutal. That's rough. That is like a major symptom of shitty parent syndrome. So when you can just say to yourself or remind yourself, that parenting is hard for everyone. This It's just how human nature is. It's hard to raise another human. That is a powerful act of self-compassion. And if you find yourself in situations, whether it's certain social media channels you follow or certain parent groups that you end up hanging out with that pick up or drop off or you know on the side of the soccer field or whatever it is, if there are folks you're hanging out with either in real life or virtually on a regular basis who leave you feeling like you are the only one who, those aren't your people and you need to take a break from them right? Like, and it doesn't mean they're bad people. It's just that they're not your people. And so spending time with or listening to podcasts that or reading books that or just reminding yourself Mm -hmm. that you're not alone is one of the most powerful acts of compassion uh, you can treat yourselves with or take you one of the most powerful acts of compassion you can offer to yourself. And parenting just feels so much easier and less stressful when you know you're not alone. Mm 
So that's the connection piece. Does that make sense? For sure. Yep. Love it. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, whew, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us. Are you overwhelmed by the things that get in the way of you doing what you want to do? Are you looking for ways to simplify life to better align with your values? Do you want to create space in your schedule so you have room for more of the good stuff? Play, joy, relationships, gratitude, and more? If you answered yes to any of these questions, I invite you to check out Edit Your Life, a podcast to help you edit the unnecessary from your life so you have more room to enjoy the awesome. Through episodes with me, Christine Co., and a range of super smart, compassionate, and thoughtful guests, you'll come away with big picture insights and practical ways to declutter your home, schedule, and mental space without getting bogged down by perfection. I have always believed that small moments and actions matter tremendously. My goal is to help you find agency and space in your life through doable baby steps that will leave you feeling accomplished instead of overwhelmed. Check out Edit Your Life wherever you enjoy your podcasts. So the next piece is about getting curious with ourselves. And I see curiosity as the antidote to judgment. And so many of us, something happens in life, in our parenting, to us, to our kids, and we immediately jump to judgment. Oh, Mm -hmm. I screwed that up. Oh, I'm a crappy parent. Oh, blah, blah, blah. That's not going to end well. And what if instead of judging ourselves, we can take a moment and get curious about what happened? So let's say you shout at your kid, you scream at them, you totally lose your shit with them. Many of us are going to jump right to, I'm a shitty parent and I'm screwing up my kids. Okay, well, what if we put that voice aside Mm -hmm. and tried to just say, oh, what just happened there? What do I need? What does my kid need? Yes. Right. And then listen to yourself. Take your answer seriously. Because if your answer is, I need a freaking break. Well, yeah, you probably do. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, you might not be able to get one anytime soon. And maybe the best break you can get is to stick your kid in front of Bluey so that (laughs) you can, you know, sit and drink tea or stare at the wall or text a friend or whatever you need to do, right? Yes. Yes. And that is a great use of television. Remember, parents, Mm -hmm. TV screen time is not for your kids. It's for you. (laughs) You put them in the screen, in front of the screen. No, seriously. Like, Come on, let's be real. Your kids aren't learning anything in front of a screen. I don't care if it's baby Einstein or what. They're just not. There's some screen time is better than other screen time, but it's all just screen time. And it is, but what a gift. It is manna from heaven for parents. So save the screen time for when you need it. Your kids never need it. It's when you need it. And I'm a big fan. Okay. So can you get curious about what you need? And I dive deep into this in the book and then respect that and honor it, right? Don't blow it off. Take care of yourself. And then the last piece of compassion is about treating yourself with kindness. And there, I go through a lot of different ways that we can treat ourselves with kindness, but the biggest one really is kind self-talk. Noticing that crap voice in our head that says, you're screwing this up, you know, you're making a mistake, your parent, your kids are going to be a mess, whatever. 
And trying to replace that with, you know, whatever your version of kind self-talk is, whether it's that common humanity, parenting is hard for everyone, whether it's okay that I'm struggling because that's just part, you know, being just because this is hard, that doesn't mean I'm screwing it up. You know, it's okay to make mistakes in parenting, whatever your kind understanding self-talk is, that's where I want you to go. And if you are having a hard time coming up with those words, call the people who will talk to you with that kind self-talk. Call a friend, call your therapist, call whoever it is, because I'm really hoping they're not going to come back at you with, oh my God, you actually are a really terrible parent and you totally screwed that one up. I can't believe you did that. What they're going to say is like, oh yeah, I've been there. I've done that too. And oh, you had a crappy moment. It happens to all of us, like whatever. They're going to come back at you with the kindness that I hope every parent can offer to themselves. Absolutely. Really excited for people to dig into that, into the, into the book to, to, to get those examples of, of what you're describing that happens. It's such, um, gosh, I can't think of the right word, but it be, because it's so much in the like tapes that we play in our head, sometimes yes. it's hard to catch even, um, to, to notice. I think you were m- maybe describing that in your a mindfulness based, uh, stress reduction class is that they mm-hmm. were, kind of teaching you um, that practice, like you said. And it, it took a little while. It's not oh, something yeah. like you're like, okay, I'm going to be kind to myself and then it's just done. Yeah. yeah. And here's what happens. Uh, and what I did for many years is folks listen to this podcast and they're like, oh, that's great. Okay. That nice lady said that stuff about self-compassion. <laughs> that was awesome. Moving on. And then you're distracted because your kid forgot their lunch at school or something, whatever. And then you don't do anything when things are okay. Because if things are okay, why would you do anything? I get that. We're all busy. We don't have time to worry about this like stuff when there's laundry to be done and homework to be managed and science fairs that pop up out of nowhere, whatever. Like I get that. But then the problem is then the moment happens, Mm -hmm. right? The hard, confusing, stressful, awful fight with your kid, whatever it is, self-doubt, shitty moment. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh yeah, what did that lady say? And here's the thing. We can't learn new skills or speak a new language in moments of crisis. That's not how our brain works. It just, it's not possible. Don't beat yourself up about it. It's just not possible. And so what we want to do is practice when it's easy. And I have a bunch of ideas for this in the book, but in those smaller moments, when you catch yourself having those, you know, I'm a terrible parent thoughts, even in small moments, which it'll happen in small moments. And the example I use in the book is, um, so my, I have one daughter who very neatly files her school papers and another daughter who like shoves them down in the bottom of her (laughs) backpack. And then like, I swear there's like chewed up gum in there. And I think she like, sets them on fire. I don't really know what's going on. I'm terrified at the bottom of her backpack. I don't want to look at it. But it's a mess, right? And we pull out the papers and they're like crinkled and torn and it's like horrifying. And a good friend of mine who has a kid in the same class texted me one day and was like, oh yeah, my son's papers are a mess in the bottom of his backpack. I can't find anything. I'm such a shitty mother. And I was like, I know that if I really talk to my friend about this, she would not actually think she is a bad mother because her fifth grade kid doesn't have a good filing system. But she's been saying it so much for so often, as I also did for many years, that it just rolls off the tongue. And so part of practicing when it's easy is catching yourself in those less stressful, less intense moments and trying to notice when you're tempted to say, I'm such a bad parent or I'm really messing this up and trying to replace that language with, gosh, it's really hard to get fifth graders to take care of their papers because it is. They are generally terrible at it. And so trying to find a better, and by which I mean sort of more skillful, kinder narrative about what's going on. And maybe the answer is, I don't know what I'm doing as a parent. I need more information, resources, and support that I don't have. 
And those are very wise things to say when they're true. And it has nothing to do with you being a bad parent. Right, for sure. Right. And if to connect to that, also, like if you can't get the resources, that doesn't also make you a bad parent. Oh my like, gosh. If, if resources are not available to you. That's that's more like what you were talking about before is the the context of life still applies in all of these situations. Like you're not just yelling at your kid because whatever, you're a bad parent, but maybe you didn't get enough sleep or I don't know, maybe you do need more help, but help isn't available. Th this was particularly true during the pandemic. Um, and I saw this across the board with um, pregnant and postpartum parents is that they needed the resources and they couldn't get them. It Absolutely. Was, like literally not available. Absolutely. I mean, but one of the things all that go, it goes back onto them feeling we one of the the hallmarks of shitty parent syndrome and maybe also being a human being syndrome mm. is blaming ourselves and taking individual responsibility for things that are fundamentally a communal problem. So lack of like trying to raise a kid without childcare, that's not a you problem. That's a communal problem. And at the start of the pandemic, I had people reaching out to me being like, I work a full-time job and I've got an infant and a two-year-old and we're at home and I'm losing my shit all the time. How do I do this? And I was like, I don't have an answer for you because that's not possible. It is not yeah. possible to work full-time and have your kids home with you and not lose your shit. Like, that's like saying, how do I avoid gravity? I don't know. I don't know how to do that. Like, I got nothing because, and that wasn't their fault, right? right? That wasn't their fault. And the lack of childcare, which is one of the many resources, Kat, that parents can't access enough, that's not an individual person's fault. And it very much feels, it can feel like it is because if you don't have the money to pay for childcare, that can feel like it's your fault. But I actually believe that we have a responsibility to take care of each other and to take care of our kids at a communal and state and national level which maybe reasonable people can disagree about that. But I just think it's part of being in a community that we take yeah. care of each other and our children. And so for parents, there are so many resources that we often need for ourselves and our children, including money, time, mm -hmm. space, all of which we lost during the pandemic, but also access to mental health care. Yeah. You and I know that there are not enough therapists out in the world for ourselves and our children, and that people who often really need treatment uh, can't get it. And when that happens, you do the best you can with what you have, and you have so much compassion for yourself. And you remember that if you are struggling or your child is struggling, it's not your fault. Yeah. It's because life is crazy hard right now. Yeah. Parenting is crazy hard right now. And if you can't get the resources you need, it's going to be even harder. And that's when just do your best to not blame yourself, but just to treat yourself with compassion. Yeah. Sucks. Thank you for that. It's really hard. I, like the, I, It's particularly difficult, I think, to access that, like you said, when you're already stressed out. And we just went through two plus years of being stressed out constantly. Constantly. Uh, it's just, it's hard to remember the why you feel the way that you do. So this practice of self-compassion when you have those little moments that aren't so intense sounds like really the key to start building that up. Absolutely. And look, the people who are moving through the world right now, not feeling anxious and terrified and completely confused and overwhelmed, I want to find them and be like, who are you and how are you doing this? Because given the state of the world, and again, this is not very funny, but that's okay. Sometimes it's not funny. Like I just, I think that feeling confused and overwhelmed is totally normal and reasonable right now. It's like the logical outcome of 
all the the dumpster fire. And so to the extent that we can remember that and then do what we need to do to take care of ourselves. I will tell you that uh, every single night during the pandemic, our family of four sat down and watched a TV show together. And I was our favorite one, I think, was Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which if you haven't seen this, it's a sitcom about a police uh, precinct in Brooklyn, New York. And the, the humor is so freaking inappropriate and juvenile. And my family and I were just laughing. And I was like, we have to end every day laughing. And I don't care if I have to explain to my daughter what an orgasm is because they keep making orgasm jokes on the show. It is so worth it because we have to end the day laughing. And so like whatever you can do to take care of yourself during this crazy time, you deserve it and we all need it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that one of the ways that people can take care of themselves is by reading uh, through your book and understanding um, what I love about books whether you're you have them in your hands or you're listening to an audiobook is that you can go back. Yeah. Um, you can go back and reread or re-listen and sometimes I do need that uh because I if something like you said if you're having one of those like moments where you're sort of struck by the by the awe of this realization that you're having, you might need to go over that multiple times to really hold on to it. And I think that's just the beauty of books for me is being able to go back and listen. And this, I think what you're describing and what is in your book is that it's like, you're not going to read through a book and retain absolutely everything. You might need to go back and like reintroduce the idea or, or solidify the idea. Absolutely. And there, look, there, thankfully, there are a lot of people out there writing and talking about self-compassion now way more than there were in the past. And so there's a number of great books and I have a list of some of my favorites in the back of my book. And there's also amazing podcasts and it's there's a huge number of resources out there for parents. And what I would say to them is find the person out there who's talking about self-compassion in a way that resonates with you. Some people are going to come at it from a mindfulness perspective. Some people might come at it from a religious perspective. Some people might come at it from a super sweary, snarky perspective. I don't know. And maybe that's going to work for you. But, you know, sometimes I think about that if you look at the world's major religions, Many of them have a practice where you pray multiple times a day or at least on a daily basis. And the way I think about that is that it's an acknowledgement that we need time every single day to practice feeling centered, feeling calm, reminding ourselves of what's important to us. Because during the rest of the day, we get so overwhelmed by this flood of information and advice and images that it can feel really hard to stay on solid ground. And so compassion works the same way. I feel like we need these moments of intentional compassion throughout our day. And however you work that into your life, whether it's touching base every day with the people in your life who are loving and supportive to you, whether it's going back and listening to books and podcasts that remind you of self-compassion, whether it's you have a little self-compassion practice of a mindfulness, loving kindness meditation, whether you have a, a beaded bracelet or a rock or a stone or some tangible physical object that you carry with you that when you touch it it triggers some reminder for you right to like reaching for my little i have that too i have tangible stuff right we all i have this little frog guy i'm gonna show (laughs) uh my daughter made him at camp is he not the cutest thing super cute and when i look at him i just feel the love of my daughter right and that is like this moment for me my daughter would be like dude mom is just a frog calm down but for me right Right? I know. I'm like, you have no idea, baby girl. So I have this little frog that I keep on my desk. And when I'm feeling overwhelmed, 
Meaning it's about supporting yeah. your brain, yeah. right? And supporting yeah. our bodies and our brains to come back to that place of kindness and compassion and understanding and support. And the more we do it, the more easily and naturally it will happen. And it, the more easily and naturally it will happen in those moments of crisis and fear and stress and overwhelm. And that's when we really need it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think people really need this particular reminder right now, right? So are there any other points you'd like to share with us? Thank you for asking. I think there is one point actually I'd like to share, which is one of the things I'm seeing a lot as I talk to parents and as we're starting to hopefully emerge from this pandemic is we're getting more information and data about the impact of the pandemic on our kids, on their mental health, on their physical health, on their academic progression, on their relationships, all this stuff. And I see a lot of parents blaming themselves or feeling bad about the choices they made during COVID, about whether to send their kid to school or keep them home, whether to make their kid wear a mask or not, whether to let their kids play sports or do social activities or not. And what I want to say to parents is, look, at any given moment, the choices we were being offered were bad and worse. And as we were making those choices, we had no idea which one was bad and which one was worse. It was really, honestly, a lose-lose situation. And so one of the reasons I wrote this book right now is because I'm hoping to counteract a little bit of sort of the blame and shame that so many parents are feeling about the situation they ended up in during COVID, which often was so completely beyond their control. And so just as I hope we're not blaming other parents for the choices they were sort of forced into making during this crazy, unprecedented, nobody knows what the hell they're doing time, hopefully we can extend the same grace to ourselves and not judge ourselves for, again, choosing between bad and worse and having no idea which one was bad and which one was worse. So that's maybe a final thought I want to leave parents with. Yeah, I 100% agreed. It was rough. And there are not enough words to describe how difficult it, it was to really encapsulate what that felt like and what people were up against. And I think, you know, so right now, as you and I are recording this, cat, it's August of 2023, and I think that it's still hard. And I think some of us are looking at other parents who seem to be, to have figured out, like, oh, they're fine doing all the things and not wearing masks and whatever it is. And maybe we're in that place and maybe we're not, mm -hmm. but it is still very hard. It's hard in a different way. And so if you as a parent are still struggling with this transition, please know you're not alone. Like many parents, many schools, many communities are still really having a hard time figuring out what it means to get back to quote unquote normal life and how to do that. And again, if this is hard for you, it's because it's legitimately hard. It's not because there's anything wrong with you. Absolutely. I thank you so much for coming on and sharing your wisdom and the, about your book. I think it is great timing for it to be coming out right now to support all of, all of these parents. Thank you. And, and now I have to do the shameless plug. Uh, my book is called <laughs> You Are Not a Shitty Parent, and it's avail it will be published on September 27th, 2022. And it is available for pre-order at your local independent bookstore or online. Right. And it will be audiobook as well. Yeah, we've got the uh, Kindle e-version and we've got the paper version and it'll be on audiobook. That's very exciting. I'm so excited. Yeah, it's awesome. Thank you so much for coming on, Carla. I appreciate your time. And thank you, Kat, for everything you do to support parents in the craziness of parenting. Thank you. So if you'd like to learn more about the book and more from Carla, go to CarlaNomberg.com. You can also find her on Instagram, Carla Nomberg, and on Facebook, C. Nomberg. You can find her book, 
online or in your local bookstore. And certainly if you are at your local bookstore and they don't have any of the books that you'd like to have in there, you can ask them to bring that book in and carry it. Please do share this episode with everybody. I think this information can really apply to any new parent, any parent who is feeling these feelings, which honestly is all of us. So yeah, share this episode, get it out there to people who you think could benefit from hearing it and getting into that book. I appreciate you for being here. We'll see you next time. Thank you so much for joining us today. Please share this podcast. Together we can support moms and families so that no one has to deal with this alone. Come connect with us at momandmind.com. Feel like you're the martyr in your family? You're not alone. Hey, this is Joanne. And Brie. And we're from the No Guilt Mom podcast. Brie, we talk to a lot of moms. Yeah, we sure do. And if you're a mom who has a to-do list that is so massive that you get overwhelmed and you shut down. Or if you fall into the habit of doing everything for everyone and don't know how to change it, we can help you become a no guilt mom. We're going to take you from family martyr to family model. That's role model so that you role model the behavior that you want to see out of your kids. You're going to go from being tired and overwhelmed to energized and guilt free. Every week, you'll get actionable strategies that you can implement right away from the experts that we interview and from us. We also have a whole lot of fun. So check out the No Guilt Mom podcast everywhere you listen to your favorite shows.